one thing that people from outside of Southeast Asia really don't understand is that even though this is a cluster of countries that are geographically close together, the cultures are vastly different. The levels of development are vastly different. So you really have to look at it almost market by market. There are similarities. There are things that we have in common, and Mm. that is mostly cultural. For example, there's a much stronger sense of community versus being extremely individualistic. That obviously does translate to the workplace, and therefore maybe people do want to see each other a bit more than in certain other markets. But the markets are really extremely different. You see extreme differences where Singapore is really mostly hybrid and within a very competitive job market, it's extremely difficult to tell someone you have to come back to the office five days a week. Whereas in a market like Vietnam, that's completely the opposite. So in Vietnam, 83% of companies are back to the office full time, not even one day a week at home or two days a week at home. (laughs) They just went back to business as usual. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Say hello to Basket, transforming Indonesia's supply chains and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt. They are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Hey, Dan. Really excited to have you on the show. You're a serial founder. You're building in hybrid remote work. You're building in Vietnam. And you're a funny guy as well. So excited to hear a little bit more about your journey. Could you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, real honor to be here since I've seen it on social media so many times. Really great to have this conversation. So I'm Dan. I'm currently the founder CEO of a company called PlexOS, um, which is helping hybrid and remote teams. And before that, I worked in advertising and I ran a co-working space. Amazing. So, you know, I was kind of doing my research as always with every guest. And it turns out that you were a founder all the way back in July 2000. So over almost two dozen years ago. So I love what you said. You wrote here, I said, in the Netherlands, you co-founded Pioneer and online food delivery services in the Netherlands. Unfortunately, we needed more people with the internet who would be comfortable to order food online. And you put a smiley face. So I got to hear the story. That was a long time ago. That's, so talk about it. Yeah. Just one of the many examples where I was doing something at the wrong time. So yeah, for the full context, I was a terrible student. I was terrible at school. I didn't like sitting still. I didn't like being in class. And so at some point, I decided to drop out of school at the age of 15 and, and get a job. Basically, I had to get just any job. And I started working at this ISP, internet provider, and just doing less work. People would call up and say, my internet isn't working. What can I do? And of course, I would just say, reset your computer, reset your router, and then call back. And then I hope that a colleague would pick up that call. And then I met someone who was kind of in the internet space, thinking about websites. That's what we were talking about at that point in time, 23 years ago, and had this idea that, hey, why 
couldn't people order food online? And yeah, we decided to try and build something. We were both not technical. I knew HTML. I had taught myself how to build websites and like just code basic websites, but I had no idea how to build something like an online food ordering system. So it was a lot of downloading things from the internet, trying it out, putting a website together. And the final mechanism was basically, I think like a Java library that we used and a tree structure where you could click on what kind of cuisine you wanted and then it would unfold which restaurants in that category we had on the website and then you could click on that website on that restaurant and then you would see in a separate you remember like the websites where you had two frames basically in the other frame you would see the menu and then you could sort of type in what you wanted and click submit and then the restaurant would get a fax <laughs> so that's how far back we're not talking. a whatsapp message is there, no, no, there were no mobile phones yet but yeah so so we had found email to fax yeah. service online so yeah. the website would generate an email that email would get sent to the service that would then translate it to a fax and the fax would then come out in in the restaurant and then the rest would be done by the restaurant obviously there was no online payment back then there was no mobile payment back then so the restaurant would just fulfill that as any kind of like telephone order and the lend delivered food to you and yeah it was just a bit too early but it was fun to experiment with yeah and i guess what did you learn i mean obviously you learned like you said was there not people buying or, or were there people who were buying how did it work i know i think we we stopped early enough that we didn't go we didn't go like too far down the path of trying to make it work even though the market wasn't really with us but I learned a lot during that time. There was a lot of experimentation that was happening. And again, putting something together in that case, like building a website and trying to build a product, trying to build a service, was just very interesting. And around that same time, I was still excited to do more. I was still doing my help desk job. And yeah, around that time, something happened when I was still living in the Netherlands where I'm from. There was this like really big fireworks factory that blew mm. up. And that was actually no. like really near a residential area. I'm not sure who had the bright idea to put a fireworks factory in a neighborhood, but anyhow, okay. probably after that happened, they never would do it again. But yeah, yeah, so basically this factory exploded and it became oh, obviously a big news story. Definitely people passed away, became a big news story. And it kind of dawned that, hey, why aren't we using the internet to find all the news about this big event? Because everyone mm. was talking about it offline. And again, the big broadcasters would have their news websites. There were some dedicated news websites, but there wasn't really any place for people to go to find like all the latest news. So I just kind of built a very basic website. Again, this is from my time when I didn't have internet at home. So I would go to the library to be on a computer there and basically learn HTML. So I put together a really basic website where I just added whenever there was new news that I could find online, I would just add it to that website as another link or another piece of content. And then I would find a service that would provide a messaging board so people could post messages about people that they had lost or that they didn't know how to contact or has this person been found. And then because I built that website and because there really wasn't much like that out there at that time. It was picked up by a lot of news services. So it mm. was on TV and on the radio and people were talking about this URL. And right. unfortunately, this is before Google Analytics existed. So I only had the stat counter that you maybe remember from the really Oh, those websites. HTML, those the, the little <laughs> counters. Yeah, We're talking way back. We're talking way back, Jeremy. So yeah. yeah, we had a little stat counter that would go up 
but we had no idea where it came from or whatever. So that was another thing that I, that kind of came right after that. And then I ended up finding a job at a startup that was doing things around bringing news to the internet, bringing pages around topics to the internet, kind of like about.com, but in the Netherlands. And that's really my first startup experience. Yeah. And then you worked for seven years in this online marketing agency and mm. you spent nine years at Ogilvy. So that was a long stretch of time. So I was kind of curious, like what was going through your mind during this? time period so the first part where i was working at this company this startup kind of incubator where they would develop all kinds of concepts that were successful maybe in the us or in other parts of the world and trying to bring it to the netherlands and just trying to be first in the markets so we were doing things like the about.com of the netherlands and we did a netflix of the netherlands where a part of my job was literally in the early days like packaging the dvds into the envelopes and then sending it to customers and putting it on the scale and getting the stamp and all that so i did that for seven years and the company never really got that big because we would always do it really small and then maybe exit or sell the concept that was working well. And, you know, no offense to my boss at the time, but I kind of felt like after seven years, I want a real job, <laughs> especially as someone who had dropped out of high school. I kind of All felt right. like I need to prove that yeah. I can do more than just work in this company where right. this one person decided that I'm worth hiring. So I need to prove that through some big brands. So I just applied to a bunch of jobs and I had my internet background. I knew a bit about content marketing, about affiliate marketing, about analytics. And so I just tried to find a job and ended up at Ogilvy um, as a, I don't really know what the title was, but I think like website, webmaster, uh, content marketing person, and helping brands like Amex and Ford uh, in the really early days of managing professional websites and making sure the right content was on there. And then eventually went from there into digital media. Then while I was at Ogilvy, there was a new CEO that came into the company and he said, okay, I got to make my mark somehow. I got to launch myself somehow. So he said, what will happen to Ogilvy, which was one of the maybe top three or top five advertising agencies at that time, is really dependent on the youth, on the young people of today. So let's find those young people in our company and give them a platform to say what they think the future of the company is going to be. He mm. launched this really big international talent competition where anyone could write an essay about what they thought the future of the company would be and maybe oh. the future of advertising in general. Um, and I sent mine in and then fortunately was selected and they flew 12 people from all over the world to Turkey and basically had a really big summit there where we presented to the global leadership, like the 200 most senior leaders in the company. We basically presented our vision, even though we probably didn't know that much <laughs> that was that interesting to them, but we presented our vision. And then I got talking to all kinds of people within the company and I realized, whoa, this is not just like some local ad agency. This really is this huge global company. I really didn't have that sense until then. And eventually ended up talking to someone who ran a group in New York focused mm. on health Helping really big global brands with their strategy of doing digital content and digital overall and basically just persuaded him to hire me and that's how <laughs> I ended up moving to New York and then from yeah. New York I moved to Chicago from Chicago to Singapore and eventually to Vietnam where I still am today yeah and that's how also you moved from Europe to around the world and eventually settled in Southeast Asia. So could you walk through a little bit about how that geographic shift happened towards Southeast Asia and what made you picked, but also what made you stay as well? Yeah, I mean, I could put a super positive spin on it, but basically I'm just like a really restless person. So I don't like sitting still all that much. And even at that point in time, after like a year and a half doing a certain role, I kind of wanted something new. Mm -hmm. And Ogilvy obviously has the benefit that it has this really huge 
huge international network. They have offices in pretty much like every country in the world. So it was a nice way to stay within the company. Nine years sounds really impressive, but I moved basically every two years. So I could stay within the same company, um, but then move to other places. The US, I really wanted. Originally, I really wanted to move to Asia. So when I was at that conference and I was trying to talk to all these other global people from the company, I was really trying to land a role in Asia. Mm -hmm. But then basically New York ended up happening and I said, okay, no problem. I'll move to New York. Happy to do that. And that brought me to the US and I spent five years in the US between New York and Chicago. But I still had that kind of dream to eventually live in Asia. And this really came from making a trip to China when I was maybe 17 with the previous company way before Ogilvy and just realizing that there's a part of this world that is just so insanely different from what I'm used to as a European kid that is just on every level is so different. And at that point, I had traveled to the US and I had traveled to Asia and I was like, well, this is so different. I would love to live somewhere that's just so incredibly different from where I am today. And so, yeah, even though I had that great role in the US, I still wanted to go to Asia. So When I was working in Chicago, I was in a group doing consulting, still around digital and strategy. I took two weeks off and Mm -hmm. flew to Japan. And I told my boss, like, oh, I'm going to fly to Japan. And he said, if you're flying all the way to Asia, why not visit a couple of other places? I was like, no, I just want to go to Tokyo. That sounds really cool. It's like, why not visit a few other places? So I ended up actually visiting five different places in Asia. And every time I would go to one of the places, I would try and get a couple of people from the Ogilvy network and try to book a meeting with them and under the guise of, oh, I just want to see what's up and make the connection. But of course, I was out for a job. And then ironically, I didn't get a job at any of those five countries that I traveled to, but I did get something offered in Singapore. And that's how I ended up in Singapore and in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you did about three and a half years in Southeast Asia, and then you decided to leave and be a founder again in Southeast Asia. So I think there's a double decision. One is deciding to be a founder after so many years. That's one. And two, of course, is you decided to build this first company, Bright, in Vietnam as well. So walk through what was going through your mind. Well, I was probably just young and foolish at that time still in terms of what was going through my mind. I think, first of all, when I was doing 23 years ago, that little, I called it building a website. I didn't know the term startup. I didn't understand that there was a world called startups. I had no connection to that whatsoever, right? I was just working with someone to build this food ordering website. Then I built this like other website. Websites and like get building websites. I get it. That's how I looked at it. So when I was in Ogilvy in in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, a really big part of when you're a strategist in an ad agency, a really big part of your role is basically listening to people, interviewing people, being in focus groups, uncovering insights. Our key deliverable is insights. So what is something that when you hear it makes a lot of sense, but it's totally new and novel. (laughs) That's why it's such a hard job, or at least that's what people say. So I was interviewing a lot of people. I was obviously in a country again that I didn't know and that really didn't know anything about. So that's always for me the joy of doing strategy in and doing research in countries that I don't know. I get to know new countries, new demographics, new communities. And I was doing a lot of research, especially in late teens and Mm. young moms because I was selling Kotex and I was selling Mm. Huggies because I worked for Kimberly Clark. So I got to say, you got to buy those. You got to buy. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously when I had a baby, I had to buy Huggies, but then my wife wanted a different brand. And of course, who has more influence at the end of the day, right? So (laughs) you're marketing to the mothers. I could not even market to her. I had no persuasion skills whatsoever. It's okay. But yeah, so, you know, again, that was my role was to just be in focus groups, talk to people, do research 
approach and get to understand them as people, as human beings. You're trying to get to something that's fundamentally true about people and their motivations and their desires and aspirations and ambitions, but then to basically use that and to sell them, again, Coke or Kotex yeah. or whatever product that you're slinging at that point in time. And it was really during one of those sessions where I was sitting in a group of young moms and they were kind of pouring their heart out about all the things that they loved about being a mom and all the things that they felt were difficult about being a mom. And I heard a lot about, not just about being a mom, maybe the universal parts about being a mom, but very specifically around what does it mean to be a mom at that age in Vietnam, in Southeast Asia, and a lot about how their daily life is so different from their parents' daily life and the right. big gap between them and their parents and the expectations that parents have. Maybe no surprise to you, but to me, it was really novel Yeah, to hear that incredible pressure on people to have babies and to do that as young as possible and to maybe forego on a career and maybe forego on their own kind of dreams and their own ambitions. And again, they were not sitting there complaining about the fact that they were now a mom and that they had this wonderful baby. But it did dawn on me that there is a really big gap between what people want themselves and then sort of what society puts on them. And I decided to dive a bit deeper in that. And again, my other target audience that I was selling to was these late teens. And you heard the same stories, obviously in a very different context. But again, they felt like I live in this really cool modern world. Like I have mm. social media and I have maybe a cool university I go to or maybe my first job and I live in a big city. But then when they come back home and especially like around CNY and the situations where you're really exposed to your family, the question is like, when are you getting married and when are you going to have your first baby? And I just could really sense that people were struggling with, mm. again, what I want and what other people want from me. And how do I deal with that? Because people still want to be a good kid. We kept hearing that, that term, being a good kid. It was so important to young Vietnamese. And I basically wanted to explore that further. So... I thought, what is the opposite of everything we talked about so far? What will be a way to bring that to the world that is opposite from the fast-paced, digital, innovative world that they are living in? So I decided to start a paper magazine. Yeah. Probably, again, terrible idea. The stories of other people who basically, despite all the expectations that were put on them, found their own way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of young influencers or entrepreneurs or people who, no matter what other people said, charted their own path and did what they wanted to do and use that kind of inspiration to people to say, hmm, maybe I want that too. So again, never thinking about it as I want to be a startup founder or I want to create a startup. It was just an idea, a creative idea that I want to execute. And then eventually, when I was about a year into it, I just realized, even though it wasn't making money, in fact, I was basically paying to work <laughs> on yeah. that side of things. It was just so much more meaningful to me. And it was so much more fulfilling right. than the day job. And I started saving up to basically yeah. be able to stop working and just do my, again, I didn't call it a startup, but basically just do my company, my yeah. idea. And that's how eventually I went up to the managing director and I said, peace out. I'm going yeah. to full-time now do what I've been doing on the site anyway. Yeah. And he said, can we announce it as a sabbatical? <laughs> I was like, hey, you can announce it any way you want, but I'm out. <laughs> 
that's it. It's still going to be a long sabbatical. You can always go back to Ogilvy. Yeah, it's been about seven, eight years now. It'll be really funny if I just remember that we said it would be a sabbatical. I want to come back now, but yeah, I hey. think they're already on their third CEO since I left. Yeah. <laughs> and so there you are, you're building Bright, and I think eventually you transition to joining the team, the leadership team at Dreamplex, which is the co-working space at Dynamic in Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh City. So Walk us through about that journey and how you transition eventually. Yeah, if we skip over a few minor details, then the broad story is basically that, again, this was something that I really loved doing. It was very meaningful to me. Right. It was just never going to make money. I think that's right. the long and short of it. Right. We were there to inspire people to live happier, especially young people in a developing market are not really waking up in the morning saying, how can I spend money on yeah. living happier? And I came across Dreamplex because the original co-founder of Vietnam Works, which is the largest job website in Vietnam, his co-founder was my old boss in mm. New York. So actually, yeah. when I moved to Vietnam, I mentioned to my old boss in New York from Ogilvy that, hey, I'm going to go to Vietnam. I know that you live there for at least some time. Is there anyone that I should meet? And so he told me, yeah, you should definitely meet Jonah Levy, who was my co-founder of that company. And I said, okay, great. So I reached out to Jonah. And I think like one of the very first people I met in Vietnam, that was him. And it took quite a while for us to actually ended up working together. But from the first day that I landed in Vietnam to when we started working together, probably about five years in between, but we kind of just kept in touch. And at some point he had taken on the role of CEO at Dreamplex. And he said, you know, in a conversation, what we're working on, like we're trying to make the workplace more meaningful. We're trying to create a space where people can get more out of their work than just the paycheck and we want to deliver that through the office experience and that will help us stand out in the markets you know maybe there's something in terms of what you're doing and what we're doing that actually mm. could fit quite well together and we probably still talked about it for another six months or so yeah. and eventually he hired me as the head of product basically thinking about again beyond the space that you're providing anyway, like what could the total product of working in this environment be like? And I joined to develop that product with him and eventually took over as, as CEO. And that was the transition basically. Yeah. And what did you learn about building co-working spaces? Because I remember I, you know, I was part of the first ever co-working space in Singapore. It was like the Social Impact Hub Singapore. It was a franchise of the Impact Hub Network. And I got a title founding member, which means I was the first 10 people who were stupid enough to <laughs> sign up for a co-working space that hadn't been launched yet. But I was sick of working at Starbucks. So that's how I first got started. I think that was an interesting time where co-working space eventually became conceived. Obviously, they got popularized with WeWork in the US mm. and then it became popular around the world. So I was just kind of curious, what was it like to build this co-working I think obviously there must have been not just a space, but also the customer education, right? In Ho Chi Minh City as well. Yeah, definitely. And again, just going back to the main theme of my terrible timing as always. So I joined this kind of at the height of co-working is going to be the future. Mm. WeWork was like charting towards their IPO. They were valued at 47 billion. I right. just read right before we started recording that they were thrown out of the, the New York Stock Exchange. This was at a time where this was going to be the thing in terms of how offices and real estate is going to evolve in the future. And obviously now we live in a very different reality. Right. But I joined and again, our or my brief was really, okay, how can we think about this as a product that goes beyond just the physical office space? Because 
at the end of the day, that's going to be the commodity. Many people can rent out some space, put some furniture in and say, hey, I'm going to sublease this to other people. So the brief was really, how can we make it something that is more valuable than that and therefore gives us some competitive edge, but also therefore the work that we do as a team becomes much more meaningful, which is like a really big part of what Jonah wanted to do with the company. And we really found that through, we ended up calling it as a total package, a better day at work. But we really tried to focus on the physical space that you're sitting in, but then blending that with a sense of hospitality in terms of the people who manage that space so that coming there kind of feels like when you go to a really nice hotel and people are right. really trained on hospitality, it just feels different, right? You don't just go to that hotel just to have a place to sleep. It's the total feeling that you get from the team and from the environment that makes you feel, okay, this is worth something. And, you know, hospitality was like one big thing that we focused on in the beginning. We then also added this sense of experience. Going back to the hotel kind of analogy, the best hotels, when you walk in there, it's not just, again, the physical building and maybe nicely designed, but, you know, it has a signature style. It has a signature scent. Maybe you see upcoming events and activities. And so we kind of thought about that in the same way about co-working. Like, how can you create an environment that people want to be a part of? That the first time you walk in there, you immediately get this sense of, wow, if this could be the place that I go to work. This would be like miles and miles from a typical office building, especially here in Vietnam. Right. And that was really our mission to build something that like all those elements together. And of course, the technology was a big part of that. But all those elements together would create an experience that was totally different from what a normal office looked like. And again, for the context, like most offices here are really, it's like the lowest density, like people versus space of anything in the world. Mm. It's really just a place to sit down and do your work, maybe a little pantry, maybe a little canteen, mm. but that's really it. So we really thought about it from the perspective of, okay, if this is the place where people are going to spend so many hours a day, so many hours a week, a month, a year, how can we make that place that sort of energizes and that gives people more than just a place to work? And that was really the mission. Mm. And I think we did pretty well, especially in the newer locations that we opened. And the main learning is that, again, it's possible. It's just incredibly hard because as opposed to digital, which I'm sure a lot of the audience is in digital startups, if you don't like something about your app, you could change it tomorrow. I mean, there may be some fees involved or some work involved, but it is very adjustable. With real estate, like when you design a space and you build it, that's pretty much it for the next 10 years. So that's the main difference, but it is possible. Wow. And during this time as well, you then transitioned to start building FlexOS, right? Which is about hybrid and remote. And obviously this was also triggered by the pandemic, which has been a big change as well. So could you share a little bit more about that transition? Yeah. So the very unglamorous story is really that I joined the co-working industry. I mean, I had a great time at Dreamplex, but I joined the co-working industry at just at a terrible time. Mm. So first of all, I joined at the height of WeWork and this is going to be the future. And then very quickly after I joined, like that IPO went bust and basically everyone soured on co-working. We were at that point fundraising, like that mm. immediately was canceled and we were not in a great position. And then right after that, COVID happened, Yeah, which when you're trying to sell real estate and you're trying to rent out <laughs> office space, not the best time in the world, right? So we were very 
fortunate that Vietnam never went into the kind of circuit breaker, like really extended lockdowns that Singapore saw. So we did have only one time, two weeks. And then a couple months later, we had, I think, a three to four month lockdown. So we never got that like really extended lockdown. But anyway, it was still not a good time because a lot of companies obviously at that time started reconsidering office space and real estate Mm. and saying people who at that point that their contract ended, they were not going to renew, right? They're going to wait until this lockdown ended and then see what they wanted. And we were thinking about, okay, how is this going to change the way that people are going to work? Because if this really becomes a thing where companies, because of the pandemic, now have to figure out how to work remotely, does that mean that when the pandemic ends, I mean, I guess it still hasn't really ended, but if the pandemic ends or if the biggest part of the pandemic ends, does it mean that people will stay working remotely? Does it mean that they will continue to be in this distributed kind of fashion? We started looking around the world and we saw the hybrid model. Maybe you don't have to work from home permanently. Maybe there is some kind of like in-between in the Mm -hmm. office and at home. And we said, well, if that's what's going to happen, then maybe there is something that we can do from our experience in terms of what are workplaces that people really want to come to so that technically, even though you could work from home, you want to come to the office, which most companies would love for their people to come in, right? Few exceptions aside, most companies would love for people to be there every day and to have the magic of in-person. So we said, okay, we know how to do it. We know the recipe of the physical workspace and then the hospitality layer and the experiential layer. Could we somehow package that as software, as a service that we could then extend to companies, which then opportunistically also finally gets us out of the only way to grow our businesses, opening more buildings, which is obviously extremely capital expensive, intensive. So we saw again, the trend that was happening. We saw what was happening in the world and we overlaid that with, again, what we like doing and what we're good at and hopefully we can make money with and started building towards that and eventually fundraised for that, got our seed round together and launched it as a standalone company. Yeah. So when we're thinking about, say, office and teaming, obviously there are differences all around the world. Everybody is either for remote work, some people are for hybrid, some people are for in-person. It's a little bit of a holy war going on between all these various factions. But from your perspective, what do you think makes sense within the context of, say, Southeast Asia for how organizations should be thinking about hybrid, remote, and office? I'm going to give the really annoying consulting answer, which is that it depends. (laughs) Sadly... And this is really the truth, sadly. And again, after two years of speaking to people who are Mm. running companies and having to manage this challenge and having to think about this problem, there really isn't one solution that fits for everyone. It's dependent on so many factors in terms of what is the right mode of working. Mm. And even today, even though companies now have had two plus years of experience in experimenting with different Mm -hmm. models, maybe coming back to the office, then maybe realizing that wasn't correct, or maybe saying, as we've also seen after the pandemic or after the lockdowns ended, oh, we don't need an office anymore. We're going to go fully remote. And then kind of like backtracking on that and telling people to come in or the CEO changes and and the new CEO decides that people should be in the office. Even after two plus years of experimenting, most companies still haven't figured out the final answer because it's still developing in front of our eyes. And so there are so many factors that go into what is the right model for any company. And in our context, Jeremy, the really small startup with just a couple of employees that are just figuring out what to build. Yeah, probably those people want to sit together five days, six days a week 
and constantly collaborate, constantly iterate together, have the ability to, again, sit around the table and doing the work where maybe like a later stage startup doesn't really need that because they have extremely well-defined roles. They have well-defined KPIs and you don't need to sit in an office to hit your KPI as a salesperson or as an engineer. So yeah, sadly, the answer is it depends. And there really isn't one solution that works for everyone. Yeah. And what's interesting is that obviously you're building this out of Southeast Asia. What myths or misconceptions do people have about working culture or productivity in Southeast Asia that someone may not necessarily know either? One thing that, and this I knew before I started this, one thing that people from outside of Southeast Asia really don't understand is that even though this is a cluster of countries that are geographically close together, mm. and that in certain cases, you can travel by car between those different countries, the cultures are vastly different. The levels of development are vastly different. So you really cannot compare a Singaporean company versus a Malaysian company versus a Vietnamese company. Yeah. So you really have to look at it almost market by market. Now, of course, there are, at the same time, there are similarities there are things that we have in common and mm -hmm. that is mostly cultural and that does translate to the workplace to a certain degree for example there's a much stronger sense of community versus being extremely individualistic that obviously does translate to the workplace and therefore maybe people do want to see each other a bit more than in certain other markets but the markets are really extremely different so um, the report that Monks Hill uh, issued together with Glintz around salaries around how people work one of the aspects that was highlighted in the report was was the kind of the working models. And there you see extreme differences where Singapore is really mostly hybrid and within a very competitive job market, it's extremely difficult to tell someone you have to come back to the office five days a week. Most mm. people have the opportunity to say, then I'll decline the job offer because I have other opportunities and I'll choose a job that does offer me the ability to work from home, which is pretty nice. Um, whereas in a market like Vietnam and other markets as well, that's completely the opposite. So in Vietnam, according yeah. to that report, 83% of companies are back to the office full-time, not even one day a week at home or two days a week at home. <laughs> they just went back to business as usual right. and said, okay, we have to come back to the office. So if I just look at Vietnam, for example, there are really real reasons why no matter what I evangelize or no matter what <laughs> I tell people is a better way of working and what aligns better with what people intrinsically want, there are real reasons why you cannot do a hybrid model here or... As Alexis Pham, the chief people officer at Home Credit, always says, not yet. Eventually, of course, everything will move towards this because it is a big global world and everything will sync up eventually. But at this point in time, it's just not possible yet. And one of those reasons is that Vietnam has only very recently developed into a market where people even have knowledge jobs and where people even have office jobs. So people are just getting used to having people in an office and having knowledge-based companies rather than manufacturing companies, which is really what country was 20, 30 years ago. So all the things that you need to move towards a hybrid model or a remote model or any kind of distributed model in terms of there needs to be trust between managers and team members. There needs to be structure in place in terms of KPIs or OKRs. Like all of that just isn't there yet. And so the market just is unable to move towards that. So again, in stark contrast with Singapore, where the government was one of the first ones to say, we need to embrace this new trend. This is how we compete with the world. This is how our talent competes with talent internationally. And it has all these other benefits, right? If you work hybrid, that means two, three days per week. The 
MRT isn't overloaded and we are going to get some financial activity in the neighborhoods and we're going to see the activity and the wealth spreading beyond just the CBD. And the government was the first one to step up and say, this is the new way of working and we're going to embrace it. And then obviously the companies to follow completely different in a market like Vietnam. So that's one of the main things that I think people just don't really understand that, oh, there's like APEC, then there's Southeast Asia. But yeah, there's so many differences between the markets just in terms of how those markets have developed and therefore how the workplace is different between them. And starting to wrap things up here, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Okay. Well, besides coming on this podcast, right? You make you sound like walking into the lion's den here. I don't think that I'm a very brave person. But I knew that this question was coming as a follower of the podcast. So I was kind of thinking about this, like what is a moment that I've been brave? And it isn't really like any typical story of being brave in even the work context. But a couple of months ago, I went through, even though I've spent my whole last 10 years focusing on happiness and work and happiness at work, I was in a very bad spot. I could just feel that even though I was pushing myself, and again, as a founder, you have a team to motivate and you have investors to update and you have to uphold certain things. I could just really feel that it was costing me more and more energy. Right. And I think previously, I would have just blasted through it, keep working, keep putting in the hours, just kind of ignoring everything that's under the service. But one of the Buddhist teachers I follow, a Vietnamese mm. monk called Thich Nhat Hanh, he always says that you need to look deeply. You need mm. to look deeply into your problems. You need to really understand where they come from. What is the seed inside of you that's bringing that problem? Don't just focus on what's happening on the service, focus on what's underneath. And I, I took the time out and, and basically totally disconnected from my work and from even from family for a few days and from the world and started looking deeply. And it's just so incredibly painful because mm. you then really get to the core going decades back mm. of what is the stuff underlying your anxiety? What's the stuff underlying what you know, is frustrating you in daily life? It's not the things that you think in that moment. It's always much deeper. And I just had to go through it. And I had to really look deeply into where the pain was coming from and what could I do to address that pain. And that definitely took a bit of being brave to go through that. But I came out of that understanding what was it underneath everything that was making me feel this way. And I'm better for it now. So I would say that was my moment of brave. Could you share like what were the things you did differently or things you changed as a result of that time? Yeah, that's a good question. This is happening before that already. And for my podcast, I just interviewed Jennifer Dalsky, who is the founder of Rising Team, which is a really great platform we work with, who previously was the CEO of change.org and was like a senior exec at Facebook at Yahoo. And, you know, I always ask the closing question of if there was one wish that you had for humanity, if there was one thing you could put on a billboard, which I stole from Tim Ferriss, what would it be? And she said, focus on what matters. And she had a personal anecdote about why that came to her. And so I had this at the beginning of the year where I think we have one baby that's around the same age, both. And I saw my kid developing and I saw him becoming more of a person versus a baby. And I spent some time with him and I realized that all the moments I'm spending away from him and I'm spending away from really connecting with him, enjoying this very precious time that's only going to happen once, that's just stupid. Mm. And so I decided to change a lot in mm. terms of where I place my priority, where I place my focus and where I wanted to spend my time. And that really took 
some very extreme measures to really adjust my schedule. Because it's one thing to say, I want to spend more time with family. It's another thing to say, I simply cannot be on calls after this hour or on these days. And, you know, I was working 80 hours a week. I was working every night. I was working all my weekend days. And, you know, especially as a founder, you always have this feeling of, yeah, but we're building something and there's something great about it. And that's true. But it's also a bit of an excuse. And I think that moment where I started going deeper into, was I using work as an escape for the underlying issues? So those two together really led me to double down on the decision to really focus much more time on my family. And again, it changed some things pretty fundamentally in even how I run the company in terms of the kind of work that I can do and the kind of work that I cannot do. For example, it's best practice to do founder-led sales when you're an early stage startup. But founder-led sales also meant that I was spending many days per week just being on back-to-back -back very first screening phone calls, like sales development phone calls. And again, maybe in a way that's necessary, but I said, look, I got to find a different way. So I really did adjust uh, right. my way of working. I really did adjust my schedule where now most of my days are completely free to spend time with my son. Mm -hmm. and with my family and actually spend time to focus much more deeply on the real work that I want to do. But again, it came at a sacrifice, but that's a decision that I made. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for sharing so much about your personal journey. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your early days in terms of your career as a founder with CyberFood, trying to do food delivery via fax, which is incredible, and online news. And also, I think your decision to obviously work in marketing across two different companies all the way to Ogilvy was a really interesting learning journey about what are the various aspects you had to do to explore new pursuits, but also climb the corporate ladder. Secondly, thanks so much for sharing about your founder experience, about why you left Ogilvy, but also why you decided to build Bright and then eventually you went on to help build Dreamplex and now FlexOS. So I think really interesting to hear your entrepreneurial motivation and how you thought about each jump and the various trade-offs that you had to make along. And then lastly, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about obviously the productivity, the work and culture landscape of Southeast Asia. I thought it was interesting to hear the various details. And I think I agree with you between Singapore, between Vietnam, between Malaysia. I think these are all details that are pretty non-obvious to people who are outside Southeast Asia, but even for people who are in each of these countries themselves, it may not be so obvious when comparing to our neighboring country as well. And lastly, the bonus one, I guess, is I thought it was kind of nice and very sweet of you to share a little bit about your own personal change that you had to do and, you know, kind of like face up to the fact that you have a family and face up that you have to make certain trade-offs in order to prioritize and focus on what you care about. So thank you so much for sharing, Dan. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.